Welcome to ASCP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's pathologists and laboratory professionals. I'm Allie Brown. I'm the Chief Officer for Medical Quality at ASCP. I'm a pathologist, and I'm one of your hosts. Hey, everyone. I'm Kelly Swales, and I'm also one of your hosts. I'm an ASCP Certified Clinical Laboratory Scientist, and I work as the Executive Editor of Journals at ASCP. Okay, hi, I am Elvio Silva. I am a GYM pathologist working at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Well, that's a very short introduction for yourself. Today, we're talking with you about your career in surgical path, more specifically gynecologic pathology. We're going to talk about what inspires the research that you do. Uh, We're going to talk about challenging cases that you've encountered and the potential pitfalls surrounding them. We can talk about your revolutionary endocervical adenocarcinoma grading and staging algorithm that is so widely used now and all sorts of things. So you introduced yourself already. Can you give us a little bit about your background? How did you become a gynecologic pathologist? What happened? Okay, I graduated uh, MD in Argentina, University of La Plata. My mother was a midwife and she wanted to have a clinic where I was going to be the director of the clinic. So that was the, the original idea, and I started working on that. But after two years, I realized that I didn't like that kind of work. And I really wanted to look for something that where I could really see more about the every disease. And uh, because with the patients, it's a different story. You, you, you are talking to the person, but you don't see the disease itself. And I thought the pathology was probably the best one uh, where we can look at the cells and look at the tissue and try to understand the disease. So I started looking for a residency in Argentina, and I found a fantastic person, Oscar Croxato, was the chair. Uh, he was trained in John Hopkins with uh, Dr. Rich of the Rich Fibrosis. I learned a different kind of pathology with him. He was not a great surgical pathologist, but he was a great pathologist. And I always, always called him Dr. Y, because whenever you say this is benign, he said why. Well, this is that why. You needed, you needed to find an explanation. It's not just because it looks like. No, you needed to find an explanation. And to me, that has been the best thing. Because of political issues and economic problems, I realized that I was not going to go very far in Argentina. And I tried to apply to many programs in the U.S. and Canada. And the University of Toronto was the only one who accepted me without the interview. So we went to Toronto there. And uh, I did another residency there, and um, it was a really nice place. Uh, I love that place, but it was very cold. And uh, yeah, and uh, they offered me a job when I finished. To me, Toronto, to, to our family, was already cold. They offered me a job 300 miles north of Toronto. Oh, gee. Uh, that's, uh, we said no. And I wanted to work on cancer, so I applied to Mayo Clinic, uh, Memorial Hospital, MD Anderson, Stanford, and I was accepted here at MD Anderson in 1978 as a fellow. 
as a fellow in surgical pathology. Now I started working uh, as a fellow and I love the place. Uh, it was a small department at that time. We were only seven fellows and uh, I wanted to stay and I wanted to do electromicroscopy because electromicroscopy close to the 80s, it was what is molecular today. It was the thing to do. So the chairman called me to the office and said, look, we have a position, but it's not to do electromicroscopy. It's to do gynecologic pathology. And I said, oh, shoot. I mean, looking biopsy for endometrium and cervix for my entire life, I, I said, I don't like that. <laughs> but it was the only possibility to stay. And uh, so that's why I started doing GYN pathology. It has been a fantastic experience. Uh, I'm so happy that I stay here. In the 70s, there was no GYN pathologist at MD Anderson. The person that was doing GYN was also doing breast. And he, uh, Stephen Gallagher, very nice person, but he didn't believe in borderline tumors. So he called all the borderline tumors carcinomas. And the gynecologists were very unhappy with that. So when they offered me the job to do mainly GYM pathology, I mean, we were doing, everybody was doing everything, but we have uh, some uh, area to work more. The chairman of GYN, Dr. Felix Radlich, a very famous GYN oncologist, he said, look, I want you to find all the zero borderline tumors that this guy didn't want to recognize. And it was not possible to find those cases unless I review all the cases. So I review 900 ovarian tumors, epithelial ovarian tumors. It was a great experience because then I realized that GYN goes more than endometrium and cervix. And uh, it took me a few years to do that uh, because I was also working and signing now cases. But from that review, the 900 cases, uh, we published 14 papers. And the 14 papers, including the grading of the serous carcinoma, the recurrences of the serous borderline. Until that time, stage one, everybody said they were all benign, and I found recurrences. And I was reviewing the slides and the charts together. Just uh, so at that time, you know, to do, to see the chart, you needed to go to the medical record and I spend a lot of time there. But uh, I'm so glad that I did that. We published the transitional cell carcinoma from that group. We published the undifferentiated carcinomas of the ovary. So it was a great experience. But that is how I started in GYN pathology. It was mainly by accident. And then when you are working with a nice group of clinicians and they support you and you have a lot of material, it's great. It was the best part of my, my experience here at MD Anderson. Okay, that's a fascinating, awesome story. And thank you so much for sharing it. I always I always like to hear the origin stories for folks. And that's that's a particularly good one. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. Thank I you. need to circle back really quick. Since we offer CME for the podcast, I have to do our CME statement and then we'll we'll keep rolling on the conversation, okay? Okay. CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. 
The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should only claim the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. All right, now that that's out of the way, now we can we can get back to our conversation. So you talked a little bit about, obviously, how you got into pathology and, and why gynopathology specifically. Can you tell us kind of what you think, in your opinion, is the best part of pathology as a specialty? Pathology, I think, is, well, I, I, I am sure, is the only, the only specialty in medicine where you can see the disease. You can see the problem. The other ones are guessing. I mean, yeah, could be this, could be that, and they and they have indirect measurements, an X-ray or a blood test. But we are the ones that we see the cells, we see the tissue, and so that's why I think that uh, is a great part. Uh, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I don't know. Depending on where do you see this, we don't see patients. Is um, I see fortunately because uh, then we don't get attached emotional to the patient, and you are gonna make the wrong diagnosis just because you like the person more. Unfortunately, because sometimes you can get more information, or sometimes it happened to me already many times that they, we made a great diagnosis and the patient decides to donate money, and the money goes to the clinician and to the pathology. That is, uh, so that's, is really bad. But I think it's the best specialty. And uh, talking to clinicians, I realize how much more we know, how much more we understand a disease. Many times we have to explain the clinicians what we are saying and why are we saying that. Uh, so that's why I think that it's the best specialty to me. Yeah. I mean, I always loved it. I, all of my rotations, I liked them, but it all like in surgery when they would remove the organ or whatever, and then it leaves. I thought, well, that's sort of the interesting part, not the sewing up of the patient and this and that. So I totally agree with you. But I wonder, did you meet with some difficulty? Because I have to say, when when I people would ask me, what are you going to do? And I would say pathology, or even today, when people say, what do you do? And I tell them I'm a pathologist, sometimes they look at you sideways, and now they're like, oh, well, they would say, oh, you're so good with people. Why would you do that? You know, or you should be a dermatologist. You know, I used to get all kinds of weird things. Or, and even recently, I've had other physicians make comments like pathologists aren't real doctors, which really makes me oh, mad. Oh, that's... It's like I, try to that, do that it. That makes me angry on your behalf. <laughs> I know, just because I don't carry a stethoscope or something, it's ridiculous. What do you say about things like that? Well, I think that the um, it's a misconception, but it has a basis. There are some pathologies that they got into pathology because they didn't want to see patients. So it's a completely different story. Uh, I like pathology because I understand the disease, but some people don't like to see patients and some people like to be in an office isolated. And we, we are all, fortunately, pathology can embrace everyone. It doesn't matter the, the idea, but I think that there are many people in pathology that really like people and want to see patients, but also want to see, to understand the disease. So 
but I understand. I mean, it's usually, and um, I think we are getting better and better because uh, many years ago, pathology were in the basement and nobody cares about them. And now they are, they respect more our opinion, no? I think. Yeah, I think so too. Well, and also I would say the converse is true where there are plenty of uh, surgeons and internists, et cetera, that are really bad with patients. <laughs> Maybe should be sitting yeah. in the lab or in the radiology suite instead. So yeah, for sure. It takes all types, right? It's funny. It's funny that uh, once when some pathologists say, well, I don't like to see patients. Uh, I want to have my private life. They don't know that they need to deal with surgeons, which could right. be worse than the patients. That's right. In, in general, yeah. <laughs> Undoubtedly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what about academics versus private practice? Now, you've been primarily an academic. I mean, you've worked in a few different places. You've been at MD Anderson predominantly, and I guess every place that you've been has been predominantly academic. Yeah. Uh, but I know you tra have trained many people who have gone on to private practice or even to hybrid practices. There are so many variations now. What are your thoughts on, uh, for well, those pathologists uh, who might be training and deciding now what to go into? Yeah. I think there are two issues uh, that decide that. One is what you really like, and we don't, and what you don't like. That's one problem. For example, there are many fellows or residents that uh, I talk to. They don't like to write anything. They don't like it. It's is is just a rejection. There's a, so they cannot be in academics if you don't like to write anything. But there is another issue, which is uh, the need. So a fellow finishing the, the training, usually they want to get a, buy a house and they want to have a family and they want to have a nicer car. And So you are talking about economics. And then uh, private usually pays better than academic. So there are two different things. I worked in, uh, as you know, when I semi-retired from Anderson, I worked at Cedars-Sinai and Baylor in Dallas, which are more private-oriented. And um, the job is great, but it's a completely different story. You are offering diagnosis to patients, and that is almost the end. Cedar Sinai tried to be more academic, uh, but to be an academic, uh, you have to have time. You have to have time to review cases and to to think about projects. When you are in private pathology and, and you receive 30 cases in the morning and you have to finish the cases, you don't have time for anything. So, so there are two different things. I think that... Uh, I will always uh, choose academic, but if I have an economic issue and I have to work, I will go for private. But now it's a little, then we are seeing a change now in pathology, you know, because uh, private practices are getting less and less, and um, more private places are bought by big companies and put everyone on salary. So there is a change. Academic is a fantastic place because. I always tell the fellow, if, if the fellow is not a good pathologist, I said, just go to academic and do some kind of administration, which is true. I mean, you cannot be a bad pathologist in private. Uh, in few months, you lose the job. In academic, it's possible to do a lot of teaching, to do a lot of research, uh, to be in many committees. Uh, so, but uh, they are completely different things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they definitely are. But your research is a little bit different. I mean, research is not all one thing, right? 
So there are some people that do just like basic science research. They're in the lab and, you know, that takes a certain person, a certain background and certain facilities and support, et cetera. And then there are people who really do more of this translational research, which research that I personally am more drawn to. And that is things that are more directly related to the patient and really more directed to even morphology. You know, I feel like we talk about so much stuff now on, on the molecular side and molecular is fantastic and there's so much to do with it. But I think that sometimes we are taking the emphasis away from morphology, which is still so important. It's always going to be important. And I always enjoyed signing out with you and looking at cases and hearing the questions you had about cases because you are a morphologist first to me. I think you probably would agree with this. And then you apply the secondary things, whether it's electron microscopy, which you wanted to do initially, all the way to molecular pathology is sort of a layer on top of that. You've seen this shift over your career. So if you could talk a little bit about what do you feel that role to be? And when you approach a case, I remember signing out with you and you would have a stack of slides from an outside case, reviewing an outside case, and you would like always take a couple slides and put them aside, you know, for your collection. And you're one of the few people I've ever seen do that. uh, And that always struck me. And I really appreciated that and respected that. So if you'll just talk about kind of the process when you're looking at a case and how it fuels your curiosity. I think that there are two different types of research. There is one research, which is the most common one, and it is where you get uh, something, for example, I don't know, Xerox carcinoma of the endometrium, um, and it's a well-known entity, but you find out that suddenly you have patients that are younger than 30, which is unusual. Uh, So then you prepare a series, you publish that, and a small contribution to something that is well-established. And that is probably 90% of the research that we are doing. And it's good, it's it's very, very important, it's needed. And that is how we fill most of our CV. I like another type of research. I like more the inquisitive mind, like I told you that I grew up with this Dr. Y. So I look at a case and I try to understand the disease. With that, you come out with different ideas. And the ideas that, for example, very specific, I think that when I review all the 900 cases of ovarian tumors and I review the charts, I was taking notes and I realized that most probably these uh, serous tumors of the ovary were related to hormones, most probably, because I saw changes when the patients were pregnant, I saw changes when the patients were on oral contraceptives, uh, different things. From that, I said, okay, how can I prove this? And I said, okay, how about if I create an animal model? So then I look for an animal that usually does not have ovarian cancer. You know, in the animals, there are different ovarian cancer cases. The chickens, for example, 50% of the chickens have ovarian cancer. After I had no they, idea. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, the, we the, pump them with hormones. Yeah. The, <laughs> well, yeah. Well, no, the, the problem is that, uh, oh, the light went off. The problem is that the chickens are laying eggs. And uh, which is another thing that favors the, the, the hormonal theory. I mean, women uh, have a menstrual period once a month, so it's 12 times a year. The chicken uh, are laying eggs every four or five days. 
So they have like a hundred times more. And that stimulation is what uh, ends up in ovarian cancer. That's why after they don't lay, lay any more eggs, the chickens are killed. If you leave them and you put under condition of light and everything, 50% will develop ovarian cancer. That is known, and there are several uh, researchers doing that. So I look for an animal that uh, didn't have ovarian cancer, like uh, the guinea pig, and I started injecting a lot of hormones to the guinea pig, and I I developed uh, ovarian tumors with uh, estrogens, with testosterone, with different hormones. So I said, okay, this is true. So, and that came not just because I was dreaming, that came from the review of the cases with the charts and knowing what the patients were doing. And uh, that's why, to me, that type of inquisitive mind, I think is a question of curiosity, that you want to know why that thing happens, that you can explain that thing, how that thing happens. That is the type of research that I like it where you can make a contribution with something different. It is very, very important. You are not going to realize that looking at the slides only. You need to see the slides and review the charts, because if you don't know what happened to the patient, you know, in the 70s, zero borderline stage one were considered benign lesions. But when I reviewed the charts, I realized that some people came back with tumor. There were not too many, less than 10%. But then I re- reviewed those slides again, and I found that the ones that came back with tumor had a lot of endosalpingiosis. And I said, oh, then endosalpingiosis is related to the borderline. That is the type of research that to me is more important. The only problem that that type of research has is that it is very easy to publish series of cases that are well recognized. It is difficult to publish something that is uh, unknown. Because for many different reasons, I don't know, the reviewers are afraid of of accepting something that might be wrong. I always remember, I don't know if you, Dr. Jim Butler was here in the department, a very famous hematopathologist. And he had, in his office, he has two cards from the IAP. At that time, the use cap was the IAP. And... uh, Whenever we went to complain that somebody didn't accept a paper, he said, look, look at these two cards. In the 70s, he sent two abstracts to the IAP. One was about infected mononucleosis, where they have more cases. And the other one was nodular sclerosis in Hodgkin disease, a new type, the first description. That one was not accepted. The other one was accepted. So that's the only problem. When I proposed the grading of the serous tumor, was rejected. When I proposed the D-differentiated endometrial carcinoma, was rejected. When I proposed the origin of the ovarian cancer in the ovary, was rejected. So that's the only problem that you have to... I don't know if the reviewers are, are worried that they may accept something that is wrong, or they have an ego issue and you cannot know more than them because they are they're, they're famous. So I don't know what it is, but that's, that's the only problem. But it is really, really, to me, more attractive to find explanation for how something uh, develops. And, uh, and I think that you can help a lot more people, more patients with that. Even one thing that's interesting about GYN is it's not 
I mean, I'm a breast pathologist and I love breast pathology. I really like GYN pathology also, but breast pathology has like, it just seems more finite when you compare it to something like GYN pathology, because you can go all the way from germ cell tumors of the ovary to an epithelial carcinoma of the cervix and you have smooth muscle I mean, you have everything in between and they're all happening at you know, fairly considerable frequencies. You know, it's just such a diverse and tremendous. It just makes GYN sort of intimidating, I think. I mean, to me at least. And I think to a lot of people, if they see, and plus some of these things, if you're not at an MD Anderson or a large referral center, you may not see them with tremendous frequency and things change, classifications change. And it's just so hard to keep up with all of, of the different things. So the endometrium and the ovary, et cetera, the diagnoses are challenging in the first place. And then when things change and classification systems change and new research come out, it's impossible to stay up with everything in addition to every other specialty that a surgical pathologist may be signing out. And yeah. advice you get to those folks who, uh, other than just send everything out, you know, these people don't have the luxury of being able to hold cases aside and read about them. I mean, they need to get the work done and get the patients to be able to be treated in a timely fashion. That's kind of the opposite extreme of the career that you've had. So what do you say to these people who are maybe intimidated by gynecologic pathology because of the tremendous diversity in tumor types and diagnoses, et cetera? Yeah. Well, no, you are right. I really, sometimes I don't understand how somebody can work uh, solo practice or two people and they have to handle a, a, any kind of biopsies, uh, the, any kind of uh, tissues. And it's very difficult. But I think today, you know, in the 70s, the only possibility to find a diagnosis was just going to the library and looking for photos. Uh, Today, we have so many more things. There are so many websites. Uh, uh, you can get into Twitter. You can send photos uh, taking with a cell phone. I mean, there, there are different possibilities. I think the main thing for a private pathology working in a small place is to know the limitations and to consult uh, more often. That is the, the only thing. But, you know, if we see very few germ cell tumors here, a private person is going to see a lot less. So that's not that's not the problem. But the person has to realize the, the limitations. Uh, I really admire that people work in, uh, in a small place because I don't know how they do it. Here, I don't have any problem. If the patient has resection of the uterus and something in the GI, it goes to the GI pathologist as part. Uh, so, but if I have to do everything, yeah, that, that, that is really bad. And I, and I admire that, that kind of people. But I don't know. I, I, I am, I am so lucky to, to be working in this place because you see a lot of material over and over and over. And the, the problem to me is when you have to rely only in the literature, because sometimes the literature can be confusing. And you can have different things, uh, different opinions. But when you are working in a place like this, I trust first before anything, I trust my experience. So if I if I think that an implant is invasive, I say this is invasive. And I really don't mind that when somebody comes, I say, no, but look at here what you have been published. Well, that's okay. But uh, I know how I did my experience and, and I trust that. And uh, I don't know, uh, I have here in my office, I don't know if you can see this, but... Uh, 
Do you see that ego thing? Yes. Well, I have a I have a graph here that is from Einstein. It says ego is one over knowledge. So the least knowledge that you have, the more ego. So I look at this every day whenever I have a problem with diagnosis. And if I, I say, no, listen, uh, let's work for the patient, not for me. Uh, sometimes I have to recognize that uh, I, I am wrong. And uh, uh, it's difficult. It's difficult, for example, with the mesonephric like carcinoma of the endometrium. Uh, you know, this thing started a few years ago. Mm -hmm. um, for me, it was difficult to accept that because uh, that means that in my 30 years in GYN pathology, I had never recognized that, never recognized that there was something different. So at the beginning, I no, no, that thing doesn't exist. I didn't. And finally, I said, yeah, okay, I have been wrong for 30 years. Uh, the, but it's difficult. It's, uh, I mean, human nature, I hope, or it's me, I don't know. But uh, now you do breath pathology, and I tell you, one thing that disappointed me about you is that you didn't want to do GYM because... Uh, <laughs> You're still in the yeah. doghouse for that, Ellie. I did yeah. want to do GYM. I like GYM too. I can do more than <laughs> No, no. Yeah, but you, you, you decided for the breath. I don't know. Um, I think you make a really good point. Um, I know whenever I worked in the laboratory, I was con constantly humble about what I didn't know. You know, and I was on the bench for a long time, and by the time I left, I was kind of had be had begun to be seen as one of the people that knew things, right? But mm -hmm. every single day, I was like, I don't. You have to recognize that you don't know everything, and um, and I think medical, just medicine in general, is. I think it's it's wise for practitioners to keep that in mind that you don't know what you don't know. It's dangerous if yeah. you don't know that, right? That's probably the most dangerous thing. Yeah. I have training at home because my wife said, you don't know, you don't know. <laughs> very often. Yes, yes, yes. Often. You're an expert at work, but here, honey, you don't yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the publications that you're most proud of? Well, the, the publications that I really, really am very proud of are the ones that uh, made a significant change. So... Those are, for example, most of them were originally rejected, originally, and later on, the, 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 some of them were accepted, some were not. But, uh, for example, the grading of the serocarcinoma, when I was separating the cases, when I reviewed those 900, and I said, these are different. And I realized that when I reviewed the chart, the ones that had a low grade survived longer. So that to me was uh, very significant. The pattern system of the endocervical carcinoma is also something that, you know, uh, it's very important for the pathologists, uh, mainly working in academic, to have some time to think because the origin of the pattern system is that I was reviewing cases of uh, adenocarcinoma cervix where the patients had resection of many nodes. And you know how the surgeons are. Before, when they were doing big surgery, the more nodes that they got, the, the happier and the better they felt. No, there's over 20 nodes. And the patients uh, were usually younger, younger than 40, 40. And they have problems. They have problems edema in the legs and different things. 
And most of the times, all the lymph nodes were negative. So I said, here, there is something wrong. We need to check this. And I started looking at the, the cases. And I said, listen, I, I don't know why this is, we call this invasive. But in order to make a big statement, we needed a lot of cases. And that's why during one meeting, I said, well, whoever wants to contribute with cases, we ended up having 12 institutions, and um, Ali, you were there, who contribute with cases, and we ended up reviewing like 500 cases. And yeah, the, the ones that we call pattern A, no one had lymph node metastasis, and those lymph nodes were resected for nothing. But that is, is something that happens when you are reviewing cases and you are thinking about what you are doing. It's not just negative, no, negative, no. So if you review one case, uh, invasive five millimeters and negative, no, another one and then another one, you have to say, wait a minute, something is wrong. Why there are no metastases? For that, you need a little bit of time and you need to have that that inquisitive mind to tell you most of the ideas that I am having now uh, about ovarian cancer, which is where I'm concentrated now. And I said, I'm not going to retire until I solve this problem. Most of the ideas came in the last 10 years when I started working part-time because now I have time. Sometimes I spend an hour with a case, but uh, just looking slide after slide and going back and forward and separating slide like Ali was saying, because uh, I try to understand what I see. And I propose an idea to myself. And with the next case, I try to prove it or disprove the thing. And that is how uh, I'm building this. And uh, I am 100% sure that all the low-grade serous lesions are related to endosalpingiosis and endometriosis, for example, because I see that over and over and over. And the uh, the high grade also, they are related to other things. And uh, those are the publications that I really, really like. It. Well, I just want to highlight something you said before we move on, because it's something that I think the pathologists that I've known, that I've signed out with, trained with, been colleagues with, I think this separates kind of the what I would think are really the most awesome pathologists. And you said that you were looking at all these cases and you thought about what it meant to the patient. You understand that this surgical procedure causes morbidity to the patient and you care about the patient. So while we're sitting behind the scenes, if yeah. you take the time to think about what we're saying and how it impacts the patient or what procedure the patient is having done, you talk about curiosity of what the tumor looks like and looking at the cells. I would attest that the number one thing that you're thinking about is the impact that it has on these patients that yeah. we're so intimately looking at. I would call that direct patient care, although sometimes it's not called that. Sure. And sure. I know yeah. signing out with you, you often had like when a tumor is really ugly, you always say, uh, Dios mio, you know, you, you feel like you feel <laughs> for the patient that doesn't go unnoticed. And, uh, you know, I can name several pathologists, both in your department and then elsewhere who to me reflect that and that compassion and that empathy that a physician has. So I just wanted to put that out there as well. I, I think you, yeah, you glossed yeah, over yeah. it, but I think that's a big part of the questions that you ask yourself as well. I, I continue now working on ovarian cancer because I cannot believe that we still have the same mortality that we had 20 years ago. I mean, how is that possible? So that's why we need to change something. There's a 
and I am fighting a lot with a lot of people. Uh, I don't believe in the origin from the fallopian tube, for example. And now we see that many people that are, they have the resection of the fallopian tube and the ovary, the, the ones with a the stick, uh, they have 30% recurrence rate now in the peritoneum. So obviously that's not the origin, but it took 20 years to get here. Yeah, no doubt. So we're talking about lots of different entities. Let's talk about some specific cases. So pathologists love cases and they love to hear about interesting cases. They like to hear about mistakes they shouldn't make, pitfalls. I mean, you have the luxury of reviewing a lot of cases that have been through someone else's hands and across someone else's stage. Are there any cases that stand out? I can think of one in particular that I remember signing out uh, with you, which is that it changes names all the time, the intermediate trophoblastic tumors and things like that. So we can talk about that one or what are some specific cases that you think are important pitfalls for pathologists to know about or to think about? To me, the one that still create problems to me are the mucinous tumors in the ovary. You know, we we did something together with that. It's very interesting. You see, when you are doing, how do you start a project? So we start projects on different possibilities, looking at slides, looking at the charts, but with the mucinous tumors, it's very interesting, the, the story, because, you know, I like to look at slides. I start looking at slides without any information because I don't want to have a bias. I already know that it's a female. That, that's, that's obvious. But I like to look without information. And what happened to me with the mucinous tumor was that I was with a fellow one day and I put the slide, I saw the ovary, and I said, uh, this is a postmenopausal patient. And the fellow, he was not a very nice person, the fellow. Uh, he started laughing. No? <laughs> like I, said, I said, what happened? He said, you are wrong. You are wrong. I said, well, no, but look, this is, okay, maybe it's premenopausal, but she was treated with radiotherapy. Because of the, what I saw in the ovary, that was almost a trophic. There was no, no real ovary there. And he said, I don't think so. I don't think so. I Finally, I said, so what it is? Well, the patient was 18 years old. I said, how can I be so wrong looking at the residual ovary? And it was a mucinous tumor of the ovary. But I am a very lucky person. I have been very lucky in my life, except for a few situations. But uh, I was lucky in that situation because it was during the month of May. I remember that. And this is good because I, every time that I saw this, the fellow in the hallway, he was looking at me like saying, hey, I know that you were wrong. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it was May. So in June, he was going to leave. Right. And uh, I was not going to have this problem anymore. The next group came and again, I was now with a nicer, she was a very nice uh, fellow. And I put this slide and I said, this is a postmenopausal patient. And she said, no, Dr. Silva, I think that you are wrong. And I said, don't tell me that this is a mucinous tumor. And it was a mucinous tumor. So I said, here, we need to look for, into this. And that is how we started, and, and, and we did it together. And I uh, published the, the paper saying that mucinous tumor, intestinal type, uh, develop in abnormal ovaries. And uh, but that is just this was because of the game that I was playing. But uh, you you take advantage of these things, and uh, still uh, I see that you can see the abnormal ovary when you have areas of malignant tumor carcinomas or more borderline 
Paganismus in the my still there is a little bit of residual ovary. And it's something that uh, I feel so bad that I cannot achieve a complete satisfaction that I understand completely this. I love to see musical tumors because I want to see how I can correct my problem. And, uh, and I try to guess all the time, primary from metastasis, primary, is not very easy. It's, it's not very easy. I feel great with zero tumors. I feel con confident, no problem, clear cell, everything. But with the musical tumors, I still have problems, and to me, are very, very challenging. Uh, it's not a problem to sign it out. I mean, you can say musical tumor. I don't know if it's primary or metastasis, uh, rule out metastasis from the, clinically, but that's not what we should be doing. We should be more helpful, saying, well, most probably this is a metastasis, most probably this is primary. So that I still have problems with those cases. The trophoblast that you mentioned uh, is not a very common thing. The mucinos are a lot more common. And trophoblast has something very, very good, which is that uh, there is a blood test that you can do, the ACG. So when you are not 100% sure if it's an uh, exaggerated implantation site or it's an intermediate trophoblast, you can say, well, just follow the patient with ACG. And if the ACG is not normal, you have to do something else. So that's not a, a huge, huge problem for me. I think that case really highlights, or that, that scenario that you just talked about really highlights how humility has helped you in your career. No. Well, he fired that mm -hmm. fellow, so I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I'm just saying that, you know, <laughs> things didn't happen that need, needed to have happened. I'm just saying Dr. Silva's keeping an open mind. Yeah, he didn't really fire. <laughs> well, some working with trainees can be very stimulating, right? Because they ask questions that maybe you take for granted. Medical students too, frankly. I mean, some of the hardest questions I've ever been asked were asked to me by medical students and it, they just are thinking in a completely different way because they're approaching yeah. everything with really fresh yeah. eyes yeah. and yeah. it can really stimulate you to think about things in a different way. Yeah, you know that. Uh, I think that uh, I wrote several letters to different journals. Uh, most of them didn't answer, but I think the societies and journals, they should have a room for people with unusual ideas, new ideas, uh, not continue everybody on the same way. Uh, because that is how we progress, that is how we change. But, uh, you know, I have, a, I have a very hard time now trying to convince people that ovarian cancer starts in the ovary, which is something that to me looks weird. That, I mean, but it's difficult to convince anyone because whether it's a society or whether it's a journal, when I send the first paper saying that the ovarian cancer is in the ovary, the one of the reviewers said, well, but there are a lot of papers showing that this is in the fallopian tube, so why do we need another thing? So it's just... The, they accept one thing blind, uh, and the, the, there is no, and the worst thing that can happen is, it happened to me that uh, I complained to the editor about some rejection, and the editor said, well, I sent your paper to very senior pathologists. Oh, that's the worst part. Because a senior pathologist is never going to accept that I have been wrong for the, the entire life. A young person is more open to new ideas. And that is what I think that uh, we need to have uh, more groups with younger people with new ideas rather than 
the person that is not going to change, you know, is uh, is not evidence in medicine, is eminence. You've made a really great segue to kind of a question that I'd like to wrap up on, which is uh, how do you see the, the present and the future of pathology? You know, I'm a little bit, a little bit concerned mainly about the training, mainly about the training, because pathology has been based for many, many years on hematoxylin eosine. And that is the basic thing. And that is what 90% of the people are doing and everything. But then immuno came and immuno changed the whole thing. And now molecular came. Now, how do you teach a resident the three parts? Because you have to teach H&E because that, that is going to be the everyday work, but you have to teach immunos and the immunos are changing and continually changing. And now we had into the molecular. So how do you put that together in four years of training where you also have a clinical pathology? Is, this is really the, I, I feel really bad when I look at a case, endometrial biopsy, a papillary tumor could be endometrial, clear cell or serous, and the fellow said, uh, well, we need immune. That's the first thing. And to me, that's the last thing the, the, to, to use the immuno. And remember, uh, P53 was great for serous, but then if P53 is all completely negative, it could have a mutation too. Therefore, so you don't know if it has a mutation or not. Then you have to do the molecular. And we started with the next generation sequencing with three, two, 100, then 200, then 400 genes. And now we are going to the whole genome. I am concerned about the teaching of pathology. I think societies like your society should establish a few uh, guidelines of what is going to be the basis of the teaching. Are we going to base everything on H&E with modification of the others? Or uh, some people now say that, well, why do you care about the name if what we need is to have a mutation for the treatment? So it's, it's, it's complicated, this thing. It's, uh, I think it is great. The future to me is great because whenever there are problems, it's great. So you need to find a solution. Okay. In Argentina, there was a very famous uh, writer, Borges, who said that uh, Switzerland never, had never gone anywhere because the only thing that they did in hundreds of years was to produce cuckoo clocks and chocolate. <laughs> and uh, so you have to have problems to progress. United States progress a lot because there are a lot of problems. But with the problems, there are solutions. And uh, sometimes the solutions are fantastic, sometimes are not. But I think that the, the, the future is great because we are going to need a lot of brain power to decide many, many things to impact the patient care. I'm concerned about the teaching of the residents. That's, that is where I am concerned I, because it's getting very complicated. But I, I love it. I think it's great. And people like you, very smart, uh, should be dictating the future. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Silva, for for taking the time to talk with us. This has been a really, really great conversation, and I hope our listeners have taken the time to learn from your years of experience. Okay. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. I want to tell our listeners, too, to make sure to subscribe to the podcast and tell your colleagues all about it. 
Yeah, well, don't forget you can receive CME and CMLE credit for listening to this podcast by looking for the Inside the Lab podcast in the ASCP store or on our website, www.ascp.org.